Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and extending to verse 11. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Before we take a few minutes to consider this word, will you bow your heads briefly and let's pray together? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a speaking God. That you're a God who is there and that you are not silent. That you have a word for us. You have something that you desire for us to hear. And we believe because you're in control of all things that it's meaningful that those who are here this morning are here for a reason. You have a purpose that you desire to accomplish with each and every one of us. And we don't want to miss that purpose. We would ask for your Holy Spirit to come and to open up our minds and to open up our hearts towards all that you would have us to know, believe, and obey. And that as we know it and as we believe it and as we obey it, we would find ourselves walking in closer communion with you, our lives being changed from the inside out by the power of the Spirit and the work of the gospel. Lord, today, make today a day of salvation for us as we come to know afresh the power of who Christ is and what he's done. Hear this prayer, and according to your wisdom, answer it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I had the privilege of chatting with a couple of brothers who are friends who are serving uh, in closed countries, places where the gospel is not something that can be declared publicly or openly without persecution or opposition. And I was speaking to them on the phone, checking in on them. And was hearing some wonderful stories, as you might imagine. The Lord is often pleased to do amazing work in His church, in and through opposition, in and through persecution. That's certainly true in 
uh, the regions where these uh, brothers are at work. But one of the things that caught my attention and maybe really what dominated most of our conversation, and I found it sort of ironic because I wasn't expecting it to be the advisor on the phone in the midst of some of the challenges that, that they were facing, was that in the midst of the opposition that they were experiencing from the outside world towards the faith of Christianity, uh, what was happening was ruptures were taking place within the church. There were cracks in the foundation of their fellowship. There was divisions and dissensions that were being either caused by that opposition or I think in the course of our conversation more fairly represented, those divisions were being exposed in the midst of that opposition. They were there but were able to be covered up, were able to be smoothed over or kept at hush But when opposition increased and when challenges and trials came, those cracks got revealed. That division came to the surface. Now, we know this experience, many of us here in this room, when we're rocking along okay in our marriages, in our families, maybe in our workplaces. And there's lots of things that probably ought to be talked about but aren't being talked about. There are lots of things that should be being addressed but are not being addressed. And we're going along, getting along just kind of rocking through life, and then all of a sudden, a trial comes. A crisis presents itself, and the things that we hadn't talked about, the the divisions that had been there, the conflicts that were underneath, all of a sudden come to the fore. They're being brought out. It's, it's actually God's kindness, you understand. He's, he's after sanctification in our lives. He's after Christ-likeness in our lives. And that means he won't let us keep those conflicts and dissensions and divisions under wraps. He's going to bring them out and he's going to do the work that he has promised to do, which is the work of reconciliation. That's what he's called us into. Paul says in Corinthians, we are called to the ministry of reconciliation. That's part of the work of what the Lord does in, those, in the midst of those conflicts. Well, interestingly, if you can, you can cast that story that I was having with these brothers who are serving in a closed country, the recognition is something like that was happening here in Philippi. Um, Paul has mentioned now in several sections, going back to Philippians chapter 1 and now in Philippians 2, the fact that he longs for the, the unity of the body of Christ there in Philippi and that there is underneath some dissensions or some conflicts that need to be dealt with. In the previous section in Philippians 1.27, he actually says, my prayer for you, my vision for you is that you would be of one heart, you'd be of one mind, that you'd be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And it's a picture of comrades in arms, you know, soldiers in trenches. As you're experiencing opposition, I want you to be of one mind against one another. I don't want you fractured. Because if you are the church militant, if you are the gospel going forth into the world, we can't have it fractured. For you're going to be known by your love. You're going to be known by the testimony of your relationships. Your unity and fellowship in Christ is pivotal to your defense of the gospel. I want you to be striving side by side in the faith of the gospel. Now, in the section that we're actually in here, Philippians 2, 1 through 11... Paul is going to say, here's actually how that happens. Here's actually how that happens. How unity and fellowship, how oneness of mind and of heart can be achieved in the body of Christ. How does that actually happen? And he kind of pulls back the veil here in Philippians chapter 2. 
And he says, I want you to see the, the recipe. What are the ingredients for the ways in which unity and oneness of mind and in fellowship can actually be achieved in the body of Christ? As you're being oppressed, as you're being opposed, he actually calls them opponents in the previous passage, as the world around you attacks you. Now, what's interesting about what Paul says and where we're going to situate our time together in this section today is he says, listen, the battle for unity actually happens in the mind. It happens in the mind. That has been a reverberating theme that Paul has already given to us in the letter of Philippians, but it becomes heightened here in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. He says, if unity and fellowship and oneness is going to happen, it's got to start with you being of the same mind. Notice that's the language he uses in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. And then in verse 3 he says that you would be of one mind together. And then later he says, here's the mind that I want you to have. Consider others more significant than yourself. That's the mind that I want you to have. A mind that considers this way. A mind that thinks this way. And guess what? Verse 5, that is the very mind of Christ. It's a reverberating thing through Philippians chapter 2. And he wants us to know if we're going to be prepared for outside attack, if we're also going to be experiencing true unity and partnership and fellowship in the gospel as a local congregation, we're going to have to prepare our minds. We're going to have to do the work of preparation of mind. Now to do that, the Apostle Paul actually says there are two different mindsets. If you just want to cut through the chase and you want to cut through all of the different thought patterns and paradigms that are out there, he says really it comes down to two motivating realities when you look at minds. You either have a mind that is centered on self or you have a mind that's centered on others. Those are, those are the two minds the Apostle Paul gives us here. You have a mind that's either centered on self or you have a mind that's centered on others. Now, this mind that centers on self, look at verse 7. Paul says the self centered mind is marked by this. He says it's marked by selfish ambition and vain conceit. That's what this mind is marked by. This is how you know it's telltale signs, is it's always thinking about selfish ambition or, or vain conceit. Now, I just took a little time this week in thinking about, now, what is selfish ambition and vain conceit? Did my typical Greek word studies, did my own reflections personally compare the two? And I came to three qualities of what selfish ambition and vain conceit uh, really look like. And the first quality of what this self-centered mind that's eaten up with selfish ambition and vain conceit looks like is that it's self-interested. It's self-interested, meaning to say, it's a mind that thinks that the self is the most important subject out there. It's the most important subject out there. If you find yourself engaged in conversation with another and your mind is so full of what you're going to say and what's going on with your life that you can barely even process what it is that they're saying to you, you're in a self-centered mind. You're interested more in yourself. The subject that you love the most is me, myself, and I. And you find it a wonderful subject. You want to talk about it all the time. And you don't understand why everybody else doesn't want to talk about it all the time. And they just want to talk about themselves. It's very frustrating. Very frustrating to you that not everybody recognizes that. That's the beginning place 
of the self-interested mind. It's eaten up with the self as the reference point. It interprets life through the self. It focuses on life through the self. The person is at the center of the orbit of life. Here's the second thing. It's right in line. It's the idea of that being conceited that's here in the, here in the text. This is, a, this is a person whose ambitions all concern themselves. All concern themselves, their ambitions in life, their goals. They have personal goals and aims for themselves. And all their personal goals and aims are promotion, more money, happier, greater power, comfort, retire with a nest egg, eat as much out of life as I can, as healthy as I can for as long as I can, and then die. That's all, that's all I'm full of is those are my ambitions in life. They're selfishly oriented. The goals and the aims of life are thinking, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? And so the direction and the end for this person's life is ultimately ambitious towards the self. And then thirdly, this self-centered mind is self-promoting. It's self-promoting. It's self-interested, self-ambitioned, and self-promoting. It walks through life going, look at me, look at me, look at me. How can I make me exhibit A? How can I get you to look at me? It, 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 look, it goes to social media and it asks that question. It looks in conversations and it drops hints about me and what I did and what I've accomplished, where I've gone, what I've done, who I know. Like it does those kind of things. It's always looking to promote others. Do y'all recognize this? Because this self lives in me. I was deeply convicted by that this week. Deeply convicted by that this week. Deeply convicted how similar I am to James and John when they come to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. You know the passage. Jesus, I just have a little favor to ask. Small thing, really small thing. I would just love if you would make my, my comrade John here, my comrade James here, I'd love if you just let us sit on the right and the left hand of you when you're in glory. Think you could do that? Self-centered mind. And notice, notice how they are a Christian with a self-centered mind. These, these, are, two, these are the uber apostles. These are, these are James and John. These are men who people are going to come to conversion through, who the Lord's going to use powerfully in the mission. And these two men are eaten up with their self as they think about Jesus. And notice how they think about Jesus. They think about Jesus as a train they can hitch to to get them where they want to go. Notice how they're talking about Jesus. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we just ride on in with you? Jesus is to them a kind of charm. He's a kind of path. He's a kind of avenue to get them the dream that they've already dreamed for themselves. That's really different than saying, Jesus, I just want to lay my life down for you and whatever end or purpose that you would have for me, I embrace it fully for I know that I can completely trust you and want to honor you in any way that you would hope and imagine for me to honor you. That's a very different spirit, isn't it? 
You know, we do ourselves a disservice when we present Christ as essentially the one who's going to bring perfect satisfaction and fulfillment in your life. And the hearer is primarily thinking healthy, wealthy, wise. When actually following Jesus may cost you your life. In fact, it's done that more for Christians than the type we are in this room. That's not necessarily good news to many people who have embraced Christ. Because maybe at the end of the day they haven't embraced Christ. But they've embraced what they hope Christ will get them. What he will get them. He is to them a resource. He is to them an asset. He is to them some leverage to steward. But he isn't, he isn't simply a savior and a lord to be followed no matter what it costs. They've not yet gotten there. The self-centered mind is ensnared in that reality. It's caught in that reality. And what's interesting about Paul in this passage is he says, I want to cast your gaze towards an entirely different kind of mind. Look at it in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the mind I want you to have. If I could summarize it in a, in a sentence, look not to your own interests, but Look to the interests of others. Consider others more significant than yourself. That's the other way that he puts it in the midst of the text. So notice, here's your second mind. It's the other-centered mind. There's a self-centered mind, and there's another centered mind. Now, the other-centered mind, here's what's interesting. If we just turn what we just said about the self towards the other-centered, we have exactly the picture of what Jesus is giving, giving to us. He's saying, this is a person whose interest is more about others than themselves is more about others than themselves. So if you can remember, I joked in the first service, if you can remember that time three years ago for 30 seconds where you actually cared what someone else was saying, and you actually were drawn to them, like you were drawn, almost like caught up into them so much that you'd forgotten yourself, that's the other-centered mind. Do you remember how freeing it was? Do you remember how much in the background you were? Do you remember how joyous you felt? Do you remember how captivating it was? Do you remember when you said to yourself, if I could just stay in this space in relation with the others? And then immediately you begin to reflect on how well you did in that conversation and killed it all, like, right? The, the other-centered mind is interested in others. It actually is ambitious for others. Notice how different that would be. Instead of everything being rivalry, like, I think she's maybe prettier than me. I think he's more likable than me. I think they have more money than me. Um, rather than it being in this tet-for-tat-toe-to-toe, it's this, how can I, in relationship with you, actually be towards the fulfillment of your ambitions that are in the best interests in keeping with God's design for you? How can I relate to you in such a way? And thus leading towards not just self-ambitious for them, or not just other ambitious for them, leading to other promotion. I don't care if they have the limelight. I don't care if they're recognized. There was something a couple of weeks ago where I participated in something and did not get the credit that I should have gotten for that thing. That's the mental mind, right? That, that's the mental narrative. 
and this thing, and I'm, I'm hearing this promotion, and this other person did great work in it, but I also was there. I had a role. And I, and I found, right, I found this, this, this background noise in my, in my mind, in my head going, yeah, 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 but where's mine? Self-centered mind. Paul is saying the kind of mind that is to be true of us, increasingly so, is this other centered mind. And, and so Paul could, at this point in the, in the unfolding of this, just go, okay, church, this is who you're supposed to be. Go be it. Let's pray. He, he could do that. He doesn't. The fact that he doesn't do that is incredibly important. Is incredibly important. Because what he does beginning in verse 5 to the end of the chapter is he shows you the one person who has done this. That's all he does. He says, You're, if you want this to become even a part of your existence, and hopefully growingly so over the course of your life, you're going to have to get to know this one person. Verses 5 through 11, you're going to have to get to know Jesus Christ because actually the other-centered mind is not something you do. It's actually something you can't do. You have noticed that, right? I mean, you, you've noticed, right, how you... How you get up some mornings, like, and you just, you know, it's that morning you actually feel awake when your feet hit the ground. And this day, you're going to think of your spouse. You're going to care for him or her. You're going to think of your children. You're going to even think of your boss. And you're going to consider him or her and what it is that their needs and desires are. And you're going to labor in a sacrificial way, self-forgetfully for them. And you're, you're, you're like bowed up with excitement. Those days go terrible. You know why they go terrible? Because you are committed to be other-centered, self-centeredly. What do I mean? You think you can do it. You think you can do it. And that's why you never do it. In the midst of your desire to go care for, take up the interests and the fulfillments and what's in the best interest of everybody else, you're still full of yourself. You're still really confident in your ability to do it. And what happens? We utterly fall on our face, which is the kindest thing that the Lord can do to us. Because it leads us back to a sense of humility, dependence. He's got to grant this gift. You see, that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He says, here's what I want you to be. Let me show you the only one who's done it. Let me point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a point he gives us here in this text. He tells us that Jesus, who is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now just imagine this. One who is utterly divine, who is God himself. I think we could probably all agree that's a pretty high station in life. Maybe higher than yours. Maybe higher than Donald Trump's. Maybe higher than anyone in the world. Of all history, he's occupied the highest position. And you know what Paul tells us here? He didn't consider how to use that position for his own personal advantage. He didn't grasp at it. 
He didn't clutch at it. He didn't do what my mind did when I didn't quite get the credit I was looking for. He completely laid his life down as the interest of others. He became a man, for goodness sakes. And then became an obedient servant. One who is under the law. He is the law. How humiliating must it be to hear from a mother, you know, Mary go, hey, come here, Jesus. It's like, I'm going to follow her, you know, right? I made you, by the way, you know. (laughs) I mean, can, can you imagine? Can you imagine the reality? Of course, he would not have had that thought with a roll in his eyes like I would have had. He would have done it perfectly. He would have done it with joy. He would, have, he would have cared for her in the midst of her caring for him. It was utterly beautiful. It was a glorious dynamic of God's kindness and love being poured out in Christ towards us. Paul goes on in this passage and says he wasn't just obedient. He was obedient even unto the point of death. He was obedient even unto the point of death. You know what that means? It means that when, the, when life was going to cost him the most, when it was the right thing to do, he didn't flinch. He went and did it. Even death on a cross, even the worst kind of death imaginable. You know, Jesus didn't die of old age. He didn't die of some tragic accident. It says he humbled himself by becoming a a man and ultimately a servant leading to death. You know what that means? He chose to die. It was his mindset. It was the way in which he was oriented and directed. The character of his mind was one that was be utterly spent for the needs of those who are around him. I, I find it A beautiful illustration of his commitment to us when you read in Matthew chapter 4 of his temptation. And you realize that the evil one, while he was fasting in the wilderness, comes to him and says, You know, if you're a son of God, uh, if that's really who you are, you could turn these stones into bread. And if you're the son of God, you could jump off the pinnacle of the temple. And a legion of angels could come and could rescue you. Why don't you do that? If you can see what the, the evil one's doing, you know what the evil one's doing? The evil one's saying, use your station and power for your advantage. Use it to think about you. Use it to focus on you. Make a spectacle where the crowds will be wowed. Don't fast. Why should the Son of God ever be without bread? Of course, we know as we're reading the text of Scripture that those 40 days in the wilderness are not, they're not merely a, some imaginative, um, ascetic choice of Jesus. He's identifying with his people Israel, who for 40 years had walked in the wilderness, and who when they got hungry, grumbled and complained. Do we see Jesus grumble and complain once in Matthew chapter 4? Not at all. Who forgot God in the midst of the wilderness and decided to craft a a, a golden calf 
as the God that they're going to serve, which happens to be the very last temptation of Matthew 4 when he says to him, listen, all these kingdoms of the world I'll give to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. But because Jesus was a faithful servant who was obedient, he was willing to identify with his people even when he was in the midst of suffering because he was there to love them unto their salvation. He was in it for us. He was in it for us. Now, the, the beauty of what it is that Jesus has actually accomplished here is he is he's showing us that the kind of mind that we're being called to is the mind that he has, which Paul says is yours in Christ Jesus. Did you notice that? I hope you stumbled a little bit on that. Have this mind which is yours. You go, I don't know, hey, Paul. I don't, have you been in this mind? I, I, don't, I don't think this is mine. I mean, you're, you're speaking in possessive language. Like, it, it's yours. Like, like, you own it. Like, you've got it. I can assure you, like, just total honesty here, I don't recognize that mind much in me. I recognize the other mind in you. And Paul, at one level, is saying, Exactly. Because Jesus has already inhabited the mind that you are supposed to have. And he has inhabited it perfectly for you. It's yours. It's a gift of God to you. It's a gift of God to you. Do you know that your thought life and the record of your thought life and the wickedness of your thought life has been utterly paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know all of the righteousness of his thoughts have been credited to your account? And the fullness of other interestedness that is true of Jesus is now the possession of yours. So much so that when that judgment day comes and he reads through the idle thoughts of your life, it'll actually be the record of Jesus. That is powerful. That is powerful. This is the mind of Jesus that is yours, he's saying. You possess it. You own it. Now, in the midst of what it is that's been charged to your account and the beauty of the yours of this passage, he's saying, go live it. Go live it. In the freedom of that. In the joy of that. In the completed of that. I want you now to go let others' interests be more important to you than your own interests. Consider them more significant because Jesus considered you more significant. And all of his people and that mind, he is one for you. It's yours and him. At that point, you begin to realize, okay, when I wake up in the morning and I am so confident that today I will be other-centered, I will be sacrificial, I will be serving, and you realize how foolish that is, you will not be. But if you make a quick pivot to meditating on Philippians 2, 5 through 8 in this section, and you begin to realize, now wait, Jesus has already cared for me in the way that he's called me to care. And his care is so deep that he has already paid for the things today that I'm not even going to see to know that I didn't care for others' interests the way that they needed it. 
and in the ways in which I for a moment actually inhabit the other-centered mind, that's actually his grace through the power of the Holy Spirit working in me. That's not even me. And in the ways that I go directly against all the things that he calls me to and get totally eaten up with myself, he too has already paid for that because he's right now, even in his exalted state, where's his heart interceding for you? He's interceding for you right now. I know, I know you thought he ascended to the heavenly places and he's there and the angels have palm branches and he's eating strawberries that are chocolate covered and he's just having a grand old time. But when you read the Bible, it actually says, you know what he's thinking about? You, he's caring for you. That's what he's doing. That's what he's caring for you. You know, this is why even when we think about heaven, right? We get so caught up in thinking, oh, that's going to be so great. I'm going to be without sin. It's going to be an eternal shoreline where I can just lay out at the beach. It's going to be unbelievable. And you know what actually heaven is? It's the other-centered mind fully captured by you and by everyone that's there. So much so that we live into the beauty of all of what Jesus has done. And in that sacrifice and love of one another, we find utter joy. You see, when you choose self-sacrifice over self-interest, you choose heaven over earth and hell. That's what you do. And you know that's why in the moment of choosing that self-sacrifice, you have that moment of joy and that freedom. And you have that experience and you go, man, it was hard to get here, but how sweet it is. More of this, Lord. More of this. So as you walk in thinking about what it is that the Lord has called us to today, the quick pivot that all of our hearts needs to make is to realize we're never going to be other-centered. We only, there's only one person who has ever been other-centered in life, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only person who's ever going to do it perfectly. And the only degree that you'll experience it is your closeness to him. Is your closeness to him. Start with meditating on what it is that he's done for you, his humble love and his grace. Let that lead you to confession of your pride and selfishness. That's why he hit me so hard this week in the, in, the, in the best way imaginable. To recognize all that he has done for me and to realize how much I even use the things that he has given me to make more of me than the, of him. And it was just, it was gutting to recognize that. Say, Lord, I, I want that gone. I want that gone. I want more of you in the recognition of me. And then I want to just encourage you. Who is it right now that you know you need to consider? Right? It can be very faceless and nameless to say, consider others. Okay, others, others. Right? You know, there, there's a lot of others out there. Who, who are the others you know you need to consider. Maybe the others that you don't want to consider. Start there. What, what are the others that are difficult for you to consider? Those are probably the ones he wants you to consider. Consider others. Consider what considering others would look like for them. What it is they need. What it is that you know they would long for from you. What it is that they might need in their walk with Christ. How could you consider them? And then about as quickly as possible, act on that. 
Just make that a, a, an experience, a project this week. Act on it, but as quickly as possible. And if it goes well, give praise to the Lord for that because that's only him doing that work in you and ask for more of it as you go. And if it utterly goes flop, and it might, run straight back to meditating on the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize that he has been known to use even our foolish attempts to bring forth his ultimate glory. Even our foolish attempts. To bring forth his ultimate glory. I think we'll be surprised one day. Of the things that actually in heaven made a difference. In the work of the kingdom of God on the earth. We think it's probably the big things that we did. The truth is the big things that we do. Are usually the places where. The sinfulness of our self-centered heart. Is most present. And it's the places where we fail. Where we're weak, where we sense our deep inability, is where we feel humiliated and actually get a little humility. Where God is probably doing his best work. How can I say that with confidence? Because in the cross, the place where Jesus looked like an utter failure... The place where he was humbled to death, even death on a cross, is a place where he was accomplishing most for the kingdom of God. Why wouldn't God be pleased to do something similar in your life and in mine? Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we pray for that other-centered mind. That the mark of our lives would be increasingly that we have considered others more significant than ourselves. And we have taken up their interests over and above our own. And we have done so not as a subtle manipulation or a means by which to promote ourselves on the back end. But we have done so in a free and self-forgetful way. Because we have so gazed into the eyes of a beautiful Savior who sacrificed all of his interests in order to take up our interests and treated us as more significant than himself, though he was God of heaven and earth. He became the lowest of the low out of love for us. In his love, may we go down and share in his sufferings And find that in committing to his mind and his way, we have actually rose to the top. Lord Jesus, hear this prayer and know our hearts and our needs. And send your spirit in an inescapable and transformative way. That this week and the week after and the months and years to come would be marked in special ways. By taking up other interests more than our own. And that Jesus, we would live to know that you smile at that. Because when we do that, you see yourself. And you see yourself working through us. And there's nothing more than we want to be true of us. That when you see us, you see you. Father, hear that prayer 
and answer it. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.